Luke chapter 1. We'll read verse 57 through to the end of the chapter, to the end of chapter 1. We will be focusing on verses 67 uh, through the end of the chapter, through mostly verse 79, Zechariah's song. We will also read one catechism question in the back of the red hymnal. It should be page 872 or so, 876, 877. We'll read uh, one of those answers together. But let us turn our attention now to God's Word in Luke 1, beginning in verse 57. the account of the birth of John the Baptist. Give your attention once again to God's holy word. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. They made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. And then question 102, as we think about these things uh, relative to the petitions in the Lord's Prayer. So let's read the answer together of question 102 on page 877, the back of the red hymnal, for our catechism lesson tonight. Beloved, what do we pray for in the second petition? 
in the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. Amen. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Perhaps the most well-known of the Christmas songs, Christmas carols. And probably you've heard that that hymn penned by Isaac Watts was more of a reflection on Psalm 98. It wasn't actually written to be a Christmas carol. It's about the kingdom, of course, and you see how these things are, are woven together and how in the, in the language of, of the birth of Christ, the kingdom is just always there. Uh, naming the house of David, the city of David that we talked about uh, this morning in Zechariah's song here, uh, in the house of David, we sang about it, O come, O come, Emmanuel, Lord of, of David's key. You see that name and you understand what's going on. It's about a king and a kingdom and, and a throne. It shows how the, the birth of Christ is really the basis for so much of what we're talking about when we're talking about the kingdom of God and, and how you can't let uh, this season allow yourself to think about the birth of Christ in a way that's divorced from everything else that he does. It, it, it inaugurates all of these things about uh, the kingdom of God coming and having come and what it means in light uh, of Jesus. So, so what do we mean when we pray thy kingdom come. Well, we, we perhaps are praying for, for more than we realize, and uh, there are many themes that connect to Christmas and many themes that uh, connect to Christian discipleship and sacri sacrifice as well. So let us consider these things together. The first that we'll consider tonight is Jesus coming is the coming of the kingdom. In Zechariah's song, really the, the first half is sort of that song of praise, and, and the second half is a, is a prophecy. But the focus is on the kingdom of God, on the Messiah and what that means. Now, this is Zechariah speaking on the occasion of John, his son, his son's birth. And we see even there how John exists as this great pointer to Jesus, right? even right as he is born. Uh, his father, and you think of the relationship of sons to their fathers and how much joy uh, a father would take in his son. And yet here he is, the occasion of his son's birth, and through the enablement of the Holy Spirit, speaking of someone else, the Messiah. And he does speak directly of his son later on. But the focus is on this one who has come to establish the fullness of the kingdom of God to bring it in, in truth and in actuality uh, to earth. 
What Zechariah knows under the direction of the Holy Spirit is that he is certain that God's plan of salvation is beginning to move to completion. That's what this means. Salvation will be accomplished. Now, the the extent to which Zechariah and others around the birth of Christ, the extent to which they they know this or the, the clarity with which they understand it, we can't say for sure. Oftentimes, it's true that they are speaking beyond their own understanding, and that's certainly what Zechariah is doing here, and oftentimes you see that in prophecy. The prophet will speak beyond his own ability to understand, and and there is no exception here. But this song of rejoicing, of course, is centered around the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. What we see from this song and elsewhere, places like Psalm 98, is that salvation means God is coming. Salvation means a visitation of God. So you see that in verses uh, 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Right? God has come. Now, Zechariah there is not thinking, uh, having a fully developed picture of the divinity of Christ. He's just saying God has come. In his servant, God has come. And In verse 78, too, we see that same verb for for visiting or visitation being used, the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. God has come using this uh, same verb. God is coming to do what? Well, he's, he's coming to redeem. God is with the Messiah. And here we see Zechariah, as we just said, speaking beyond his own ability to understand. What is the sense in which God will come? Well, uh, God is present with Jesus because he anoints him to accomplish all that is relative to his office of redeemer and mediator. So that great catechism question that we use often for our affirmation of faith, Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit to be our prophet and priest and king, to fulfill those things so that he might be our savior. God is with him in the sense of his mission. But also it is true when we we see someone prophesying about Christ, the Christ child, in the way that Zechariah is here, and understanding the whole theme of God's visitation, we now, on this side of Christ and his life and ministry and the cross, we can know and understand that God was present in a way that was more profound than even they could have understood. God came in the flesh. And we give thanks for that. The wonder and the mystery of the incarnation, God taking on human form. The song focuses on fulfillment of promises and fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 70, he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Going forward to when Jesus is brought to the temple, what do you see in in the words of Simeon and Anna rejoicing that God has kept his promise to redeem his people, to console and comfort the people of Israel? What we see here is that the hope of the kingdom of God, or really the existence of the kingdom of God, what is it rooted in? It's rooted in God's promises. It doesn't come out of nowhere. Jesus doesn't just appear on the scene as some kind of brand new thing. It was promised long ago, spoken of as early as Genesis chapter 3, when mankind fell 
into sin and to death. This causes Zechariah to rejoice. This causes Mary to rejoice in in the way that that she speaks when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Simeon and, and Anna, the same thing, rejoicing. Why? Because God keeps his promises. He remembers what he has said. He does not forget and he does not fail to fulfill his promises. This is why uh, thinking of Christ's birth should cause us to rejoice. What was it? It was God keeping his promises. It was God remembering what he had said he would do. Our very faith is rooted in these things because our faith hangs upon the promises of God. Eternal life and eternal blessedness with him that he will bring us to be with him, that he will not fail to to resurrect our souls when we die on this earth, that he will not fail to bring our bodies up to eternal blessedness at the day of resurrection. Our faith hangs on the promises of God, and he remembers his promises. He does not forget. He does not fail. The very thing that animates Zechariah's praise here should animate ours. God is a God of promises. And he's a God who keeps his promises. As we've said, a lot of this is is focusing on on the kingdom. Uh, There are many things about Zechariah. Zechariah is is a priest. And many things about his prayer that are connected to themes of prayers that he would have said in the temple worship. So here is a, a, uh, a priestly prayer of the Jews that he would have likely said. It says... This would have been, of course, before Christ came. Speedily make to shoot forth the branch of David. This was a prayer that the Israelite priests would say to the Lord. Speedily make to shoot forth the branch of David. In other words, send your Messiah and exalt thou his horn by thy salvation. Same kind of themes as Zechariah, the horn of salvation. For in thy salvation we trust all the day long. Blessed art thou, Jehovah, who causeth to spring forth the horn of salvation. This is from the prayers that are called the 18 benedictions that the Israelite priests would have, would have used. So you see the, the, the hope there was intensely focused upon the Messiah. So the rejoicing of Zechariah means what? That that Jesus is, you could say it this way, Jesus is the kingdom of God. He is. It's centered upon him. It lives and breathes on his life and his ministry. So what is is this kingdom? What is it about? What what are its characteristics? Uh, Pastors, scholars, and students of the Bible debate about the nature of the kingdom. What, What is the kingdom of Christ? The kingdom that he set up? What, what is it all about? And, and most of the time, there are kind of two poles that uh, kind of anchor the discussions. Is Jesus' kingdom a spiritual kingdom, or is it a political kingdom? And you see both of those themes in Zechariah's song. You see both of those themes in the Psalms and in the prophets and those who are speaking around the birth of Christ both spiritual blessings, which would be forgiveness of sins, knowing God, coming close to God, being in fellowship with Him, and uh, political themes, being delivered from enemies, being able to serve God in freedom. So what is it that Jesus came 
to establish. Well, you see language in Zechariah's prayer that is, tends to, to lean in the more spiritual direction. Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. You see language that seems to go in a political direction. We would be delivered from the hand of our enemies in verse 74 and might serve him without fear in righteousness and holiness all of our days. And there's no reason that we need to divorce these two things, but we need to understand the way in which Christ brings them about. He came to establish his kingdom and his kingdom as it exists now is a spiritual kingdom. And it will always be a spiritual kingdom. That's what's important to understand. It will never graduate beyond being a spiritual kingdom because the, the heart of the kingdom of Christ is to know God and to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. And that's what we will be doing forever, to be joined in covenant fellowship with our creator. That's a deeply spiritual thing. The church now does not exist as a political or geopolitical entity. There are political themes that are present when we, when we worship. We think of ourselves as an, an embassy of the kingdom of God. I love the way that uh, Pastor Hollister said it when he came and preached. Uh, when we uh, gather as God's people, as an embassy of the kingdom, this is where the throne of God touches the earth. And there's a there are political themes present with that. But Jesus will not consummate that aspect of the kingdom until he comes again. That's why when we gather for worship, we're not training for physical battle as God's people. It's a kingdom of mercy. It's a kingdom that proclaims forgiveness and grace and reconciliation with God. It's a kingdom where the followers of Christ stoop and humble themselves in service to others that the gospel might be made known. So he came to establish his kingdom. The spiritual benefits flow far as the curse is found. And we await that second coming of Christ when he will come and actually uh, institute geopolitical sovereignty and blessedness that we will have with God when the enemies of God will be wiped out forever. Understanding just a little bit of that uh, map and timeline helps us when we think about praying thy kingdom come. When you pray thy kingdom come, what are you praying? We are praying that the gospel would advance, that it would advance throughout the world. We are praying that the reign of Christ would increase throughout the world. When we pray that relative to ourselves, our families, our congregation, we're saying thy kingdom come, we're saying that we would become more centered upon Jesus Christ, that our lives would be more marked by him and his character and the character of his kingdom. Ed Clowney once said it this way, if you want to understand the kingdom, keep your eyes on the king. You have your eyes on Jesus Christ and you will understand more and more of the kingdom of God. 
What is it that, that Jesus does as we experience his work now? Well, he came to put an end to the guilt of sin. We are justified through his work. We trust in him. The guilt of sin has been wiped away. The power of sin is lessened more and more as we come to know the power of Christ in our lives. Sin has less and less uh, reign and rule over us as we understand more and more of our freedom in Christ. We really have been set free. And thus we are to consider ourselves no longer alive to sin, but dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. So the guilt of sin, the power of sin. We also experience uh, the, the, the wonder of Christ when it comes to uh, after we fall into sin. Because of the glory of Christ, the glory of his work, we are able to uh, make an escape from those things in a greater way as we trust in the Savior. And we really realize that God forgives us even when we stumble and fall. We also uh, think about the power of Christ when uh, we struggle with troublesome and dark times in this life. We go through valleys. We go through tribulations. What is it that we cling to? We cling to our Savior. And we cling to our Savior as we think about the fact that only in Him will we be raised from the dead. When we're praying the kingdom come, we're praying for all of these things and, and more, but, but how does it happen? Right, how does the kingdom advance? Well, it advances through faith. Through faith. It's a kingdom that lives and breathes upon faith. Faith and unbelief is really in the background of this account with, with Zechariah. Zechariah is struck dumb in the shadow of his doubting. Why is, he, why is his ability to speak taken away? Because he, he doubts the word of the Lord. Chapter 1, uh, the angel says to him, speaking of uh, John, his son, who is to be born, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Verse 18 of Luke 1, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah is struck dumb. Why? Because he, he doubts. And Gabriel, the angel, answers him to say, in effect, don't you realize who I am? Do you think that I would be sent here to say something to you that is untrue? Do you think that I don't bring with me the authority of the Lord himself? So Zechariah's place in that instance was simply to receive and believe the word of God. That's a great reminder to us, isn't it? That when, when words come from a place of true authority, that is God's word, when something is spoken to us with the backing of the word of God, our greatest calling as his people is simply to receive and believe them. Don't believe a minister who is telling you anything other than what God tells you. 
But when a minister does open up God's word to you, when that is what is being preached faithfully and rightly, your place is to receive it and believe it. I quoted him a couple times this morning, Alfred Edersheim in his classic on the life and times of Jesus the Messiah is commenting on, on this account as well. He said this, Zechariah's last words had been those of unbelief. His first were those of praise. His last words had been a question of doubt. His first were a hymn of assurance. The question of unbelief had struck the priest dumb, for most truly unbelief cannot speak. And the answer of faith restored his speech, for most truly does faith loosen the tongue. Zechariah's song here, as he praises the Lord, is proof that the kingdom of God has come and found a home in his heart. So when we, we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying not only that the gospel would advance, we're praying, of course, that faith would advance. For faith needs to attach to that promise of the gospel. When we pray thy kingdom come, we're praying that people would believe God's word, that people would live in accordance with it. This is relative to uh, both converts and disciples. For converts, we pray that they would first come to embrace Jesus Christ as he is offered to them in the gospel. Thy kingdom come. May people be brought into this kingdom and see the glory and the beauty and the efficacy of Jesus Christ and his salvation. Disciples, we, 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 when we pray thy kingdom come, we pray that we as God's people would more and more acquiesce to the reign of Christ. That we would more and more submit ourselves to his reign and his rule. For it is when we do so that the kingdom is made manifest in us. Richard Sibbs says this, when we are so far satisfied with the government of Christ's spirit that we are willing to resign up ourselves to him in all things, then his kingdom is come to us and our wills are brought to his will. When we are so far satisfied with the government of Christ's spirit. And that's the kingdom coming. We are so in love with our Savior. We are so resigned unto him. We are so content in him. We are so satisfied in him that his government becomes satisfying to us and we resign ourselves to him in all things. Then that's when the kingdom has come to us. So really, what does it become? It becomes a prayer for the grace to lay down our lives. Do you realize that that's what you pray for partially when you pray, thy kingdom come? We're praying that God would enable us to give up more of ourselves, to lay more of ourselves down. We're praying that we would more and more die to ourselves, for it is when we die to ourselves that the kingdom becomes manifest in us more and more, that God by his grace would shape you. We also in the, the catechism question, just as we finish with a few extra thoughts tonight, that we are kept in the kingdom, just as we are brought in by his grace, 
And just as we are, uh, the kingdom is made manifest through our, our sacrificial laying down of our lives, so we are kept in the kingdom by God's power and by his grace. In the kingdom, we are also given guidance, in Luke 1, 79, to guide our feet in the way of peace. That's what, that's what God does. Psalm 25 says, good and upright in the Lord is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He will not leave us without instruction. He will not leave us starving for the nourishment that we need. He leads the humble in what is right. But whom does he lead? He leads the humble. Those who are laying down their self-confidence, throwing all of that away and saying, I need you to lead me. I need your direction. I need your grace, your forgiveness, your life. We lay it all down. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. I love how the repetition of humble there highlights its importance. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness, Psalm 25 says, for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So it's by his grace that we are kept in the kingdom, right? Salvation isn't just kind of a transaction. You go and pay something at a counter, get your salvation, and then you can go off. No, it's, it's laying down our lives and coming to the Lord of glory, coming to the King and living for him. Richard Sibbs also puts that so beautifully that so many would have the benefits of Christ as priest, and yet so few want him as king. But those who see the truth of the gospel want him as priest, and they want him as their king as well. The last mystery of all of this is that when we're saying thy kingdom come, we're, we are really praying for the end of our earthly lives, aren't we? Ultimately, not only that Christ would be uh, made more known to us and that we would become more devoted to him, that many others would come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and be brought into the kingdom of Christ. We're also praying that really, truly, we want our Lord, our King, to come again. We want him to consummate that kingdom where the, the spiritual and political will then reconnect forever and we will live in eternal blessedness with God. This is so different than the mindset of those who do not know Christ. It ought to make us burn again with a desire and a compassion for the lost. For those who don't have a hope beyond the grave, I mean, we, we always talk about it at Christian funerals, don't we? Especially those that take us by surprise. And we say, boy, how, how do you really actually deal with these things if you do not have the hope of Jesus Christ? And we see it today for those who live life on this earth. And if this world, if this earth is all people have, or if this life is all that people have, you see how it causes them uh, so much stress and anxiety. There's so much alarmism about uh, the, the coming doom and the end of, of this planet. And of course, we need to seek to be stewards of God's creation. All of that is, is fine, and those are conversations that can be worked out in other circles. But this world is not our only hope, and we give thanks for it. There are people who are trying to figure out, how, how are we going to colonize space? And that's so often fueled by uh, uh, thinking that this life or this world or this solar system is all that there is for us. But we can pray, thy kingdom come. We're saying, Lord, you can put an end to it. And we know that you can do it. The end of Second Peter, that this creation is destined 
to be purified by flame and fire. And that all things will be made new. There will be a new order of things, a new heavens and a new earth. We can pray that God's kingdom would come, for we know waiting for us is the lush and perfect world of the new heavens and the new earth. This is the light given to us who live in the shadow of death. And that's Zechariah again, when he speaks beyond what he knows as he ends uh, his prayer. You have come to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. What's that light that comes to us who live in the shadow of death? The hope of the resurrection, eternal life in Jesus Christ. So receive the king. Receive his kingdom. Follow him. Suffer willingly, knowing that he has crushed all his and your enemies. And he will finally do so when he comes again. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are filled with great joy as we think of the work of your Son and all that he has done. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. May we keep all of those things together always, giving you all the glory and thanks and adoration for it. We exalt him. uh, We glory in him. And we praise you, triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, for all you have done in our salvation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we close.